Good morning. Please open your Bibles to John chapter 15. This morning we're going to read verses 18 through chapter 16, verse 4. And we'll not cover all of those verses today, but they go together, and so we're going to read them all. It'll likely take us two weeks to, to look at these verses together, but I want to read them all. So as you're, as you're finding your place there, let's stand together, and, and we'll read the text, and, and then pray and ask the Lord to bless us as we, as we study His Word. Let's keep in mind once again here that we've, we've not come to be entertained, and we've not, comed, we've not come primarily to receive, but we've come to worship the Lord, and we are doing that even now as the Word is preached. We are, we are praising and worshiping God in how we hear the Word preached and respond to it. John chapter 15, beginning in verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. The word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word, grateful for this opportunity to to hear it and to be ministered to by the Spirit. And we pray, Lord, that, that we would think rightly about this time together, that even as we are hearing the word preached and responding to it, that we are doing so as an act of worship. Lord, it is a dark world out there. It's a dark world out of which you have called us. It's a hateful world. And some of us are experiencing the hate of the world more and more all of the time because we bear the name Jesus. So thankful that this kind Savior has spoken these words to us in this passage. 
that we might know how to think rightly about these things. And so, Father, would you, by your Spirit, open our minds and hearts to understand these things that Jesus says? And would you deprogram our minds and hearts and reprogram reprogram them by your word that we might think rightly so that when we are hated, we will not hate in return, but we will rejoice, rejoice, because we're in Christ. And though it is not a pleasurable thing to be hated. It is a wonderful thing to be associated with Jesus. So we pray, Father, that you would receive our attentiveness and our responses as acts of worship, and we pray that you would bless us by ministering the word to us. We, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I'm sure that most of us at some time or another have been told by someone, I have good news and I have bad news. How many of you prefer to receive the bad news first? Any of you prefer to receive the good news first and then the bad news? Anybody? Okay. Well, you're a weirdo. Okay. (laughs) Okay. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, brother. I love you, I love you. I would love to talk to you afterwards, just to understand that. You know, mo- most people want the bad news first, because then the good news makes them feel better afterwards, and as we read John 13 through 17, it seems like that's what Jesus is doing, because in John 13, it looks like he's given bad news, and then he's given good news. As he says in, in 13, I'm going away, which would seem to be terrible news to the disciples who for three years have only known Jesus' presence and the wonder of that. He's going away, but then he follows that up almost immediately with what seems to be great news. But I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'm going to return and take you to myself. And in the meantime, I'm going to send another helper to be with you forever. So it seems like bad news and then good news. And then we get to chapter 16, it's like, well, he's coming back around to some bad news. And then later in chapter 16, he's going to give good news again. So it seems like he's, he's balancing bad news with good news, bad news with good news. But, but we've seen that that bad news in chapter 13 is actually the best news possible. When Jesus says he's going away, what is he going away to do? What is it that the disciples don't actually understand that he's doing? He's going away to secure an eternal redemption for them. It's fantastic news that Jesus is going away. Well, here in in 1518 through 164, Jesus warns about the hatred of the world and persecution that's coming. And it sounds like he's coming back around to bad news. but, uh, But I would say yet again, in an ultimate sense, he's delivering good news. Yes, the world is going to hate you. But what the world's hatred means, what it reminds us of, is such good news to the believer. Now, only a crazy person would yearn to be hated. But but Jesus here warns us that we will be hated. And to comfort us, he shows us 
how the hatred of the world points us to the good news of our life in Him. The good news that will be the foundation to see us through whatever persecution comes our way in this life until He returns. Now, here's the first truth that He offers us, okay? It should be in the notes that you received on the way in. The world hates us because we love one another. The world hates us because we love one another. Now, I'll be the first to admit that this is not super obvious from the text itself, okay? But bear with me. I'm, I'm deriving this point from a couple of sources. The first is the way that the passage fits into the context, and the second is an explanatory cross-reference from 1 John 3, all right? So let's think about the context first. Jesus has made a strong call for us already in these chapters to love one another. And nobody can deny that. This has been a hard push. Jesus has been doing that for two whole chapters now, since 1334. Love one another as I've loved you. So that's the big message thus far. Love one another. And now he says, if the world hates you, know that it's Hated me before it hated you. That's a strong contrast, okay? Love one another. The world's going to hate you. There's a contrast there. But is there a logical connection between the two? There is, but what is it? It's not super clear here, but John's first epistle makes it crystal clear. Turn with me over to 1 John chapter 3. If I had to summarize this morning's passage with just one sentence, it would be this. Do not be surprised when the world hates you. Do not be surprised when the world hates you. And I think 1 John 3 is John's teaching on what Jesus says in John 15. John in his epistle follows Jesus very closely and helps us to see what's the logical connection between our loving one another and then the world hating us, okay? Look with me at 1 John 3.11. He writes, For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was, one, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil, and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. And you see how John connects... Our love for one another to the world's hatred for us. Cain killed Abel because his own deeds were evil, but Abel's were righteous. Now, the world does the same thing. They hate us because our deeds are righteous and theirs are evil. They don't want their deeds exposed to be evil. So when we love one another as we've been commanded to do, we ought not be surprised that the world hates us because by our love for one another, we're exposing the world's deeds as evil. That's how this passage flows with the context of John 15, okay? Love one another, and when you do that, you're going to expose the world's deeds, and they're going to hate you. Now, there's, there's great comfort in this when it comes time to endure. You know, anybody can suffer for doing evil. It happens all the time. But if you suffer for exhibiting Christ-like love, that is evidence of God's grace in your life. It's evidence that God has done a work in you that only He can do, 
And you should be encouraged by that evidence of grace. If the world hates you because of your love for one another, praise God for that. It's only by His saving grace that you could love in such a way that would draw the hatred of the world. Listen to one of the other apostles. Peter writes this in 1 Peter 4, 15 and 16. He says, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian... Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. In other words, what Peter is saying is, if you suffer for the reason that we're talking about now, if if you suffer for loving one another as Christ has called us to do, praise God, you're a Christian. Only God can, can, can change a person so that they exhibit a love that draws the hatred of the world. You can't fake that kind of love, nor would you when the hatred of the world bears down on you, unless you're genuinely converted. That's one of the points of the parable of the sower in Matthew 13. File that away when the persecution of the world comes. The second truth that Jesus gives us about the hatred of the world is that Jesus endured the hatred of the world before us to save us. Jesus endured the hatred of the world before us to save us. Verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Now, the if at the beginning of the sentence is not an if in the most literal sense. He's not saying, well, they may hate you. And if they do, just know that they hated me first. No, we should read this to say, they're going to hate you. And when they do, understand they hated me first. And it was by enduring that hatred that I saved you. You know, there are two Jesuses out there. There are two Jesuses out there. There is the Jesus that everyone loves. He's the popular Jesus. About whom some say... I follow the teachings of Jesus without really having any clue what those, teaches, those teachings are. He's the, he's the Gandhi-like figure that people, that people really like. Well, then there's the, the biblical Jesus, the Jesus that people hate. Jesus said to one of his brothers in John chapter 7, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Jesus was a living spotlight exposing sin. That's the picture that we get in John chapter 3 when Jesus said, and this is the judgment that light, he's talking about himself, light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light And does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. See, Jesus was hated to the point of not just everybody not liking him, but false charges and wrongful conviction and crucifixion. Jesus was hated unto death. He was so righteous that they put him on a cross. You see, see, in this thing of righteousness unto persecution, this is wonderful, y'all. Jesus leads from the front. What a wonderful Savior this is. Jesus doesn't send us out in the world saying, go suffer for me while I, while I watch from relative safety. No, He suffered first. He suffered the worst. 
And his suffering set the standard for all suffering. No one has ever suffered like Jesus. And, and, and there's more than that. His, his suffering, there was an element to Jesus' suffering that's unlike anything that we will ever know. Yes, evil men will persecute us. They will persecute us, just like Jesus was persecuted by evil men. But on the cross, an omnipotent God poured out his wrath on Jesus. God's wrath was satisfied in Christ. Therefore, all we will ever know is the wrath of man. Is that good news or what? Hallelujah. And the comfort here is not simply in knowing that we're not alone in this. It's not simply in knowing that Jesus suffered first. It's not simply in knowing that the world's hatred is not unique to us. That may be helpful, but it's not the point. What Jesus is saying is, when he says, know that they hated me first, he means, don't forget the cross. He's saying, when you're persecuted, when you're hated by the world, remember, my persecution secured you eternal redemption that the hatred of the world can never take away from you. They hated me first, and that hatred saved you. Wow, that's good news. Tuck that away for the day of persecution. Third, Jesus says, the world hates us because we belong to Him. The world hates us because we belong to Him. We belong to Jesus. Look at verse 19. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Jesus' words here assume this. You can't have the love of the world and His special electing love at the same time. So here's a crucial question for us to consider. Whose love do you want? Whose love do I want? Do I want Jesus' love? A love that saves me from the wrath to come unto eternity in heaven? Or do I want the world's love? A temporary fickle love that momentarily saves me from discomfort on earth unto eternity in hell. I can't have both. That's the point here. I can't have both. What does it take to have the world's love? I must be of the world. I must be of the world and I must approve of the world and celebrate the world's choices. Things that are unthinkable to the regenerate person. This world is is rebellious. It hates God. It hates Jesus. It hates righteousness. It hates the light. That's the the point Jesus was making in John 3.20. They hate the light because it exposes their darkness. Now when Jesus chose to make us His own, He's choosing to make us part of His light so that Our lives shine light in the darkness, which is intolerable to the fallen conscience. They hate it. Therefore, they hate us like they hated Jesus. And that's why why the alternative lifestyles crowd and, and, and others react so violently when you suggest that they're engaged in a sinful way of life out of which they need to be saved. They've they've worked so hard to sear their consciences that when you do something to sensitize their conscience, it's almost like an act of war to them. 
On the other hand, if they, if they regard you as one of them, they love you. If you're of the world, the world would love you. But if the world hates you, if the world hates you, it's evidence that they associate you with Jesus. Now, a word of caution. We can go astray in at least a couple of ways here in regard to the, the hatred of the world. Because in a sense here, Jesus is saying that the hatred of the world is a good thing. It means that the world does not see you as theirs. They see you as belonging to Jesus. And in that sense, the, the hatred of the world is a good thing. There's a couple of ways we can go wrong here. And one of them is by becoming downcast and saying, oh man, nobody hates me. I'm in serious trouble. And then we go out and do everything that we can to get people to hate us so that we, we feel like we're okay with Jesus. Okay? The other way is to go, go wrong by saying, oh man, I'm golden because tons of people hate me. There's, there's problems in both directions, okay? So let's be careful that we, that we receive this the way that Jesus is giving it to us. He's not giving it to us as a test for salvation. If the world hates you, you're saved. If the world loves you, you're not saved. No, he's, he's warning us about the world's hatred, and he's giving us truth to comfort us, okay? So we, we can't then take this passage and make it a test for salvation, because that's not what it is. The intent is to comfort those who find themselves being persecuted. And if we begin to treat this as a test for salvation, it's really easy to begin to think of the world's hatred as a trophy or a badge of honor. We ought not do that. Jesus does not teach us to desire the hatred of the world in this passage. He's merely warning us about it, and He's comforting us about it. It's possible for the world to hate you just because you're a genuinely horrible person. It is. That's why it's so important to understand how this, how this passage fits into the context. Jesus is, is comforting those who are hated for their love for one another. Not, not people who are hated by the world for any reason whatsoever. They're hated because they love one another. Now those, those who do seek the hatred like the world, I mean, do, do seek the hatred of the world like a trophy, they tend to attain it in the most gospel-damaging way possible. And that is by being nothing like Jesus while loudly claiming the name of Jesus. Oh, my soul, that is destructive. Many of you are aware that Dave, Dave Dorman, who's sitting in the back here, he's got an, a ministry called Evangelize Cincinnati, and multiple, multiple times a week, he and others go to different places in the city and share the gospel with, with strangers. I highly recommend going with him. It is a great way to get your feet wet and to become comfortable taking someone through the gospel. Anyway, we were at UC once this fall, there was another group there. Another group was at, on the campus. They claimed to be Christians, but they were holding signs of condemnation. One of them had a bullhorn and, and, and was spewing some of the vilest sexual accusations I have ever heard. It was 100% judgment, no gospel, and they were hated. They got that hatred, and, and they seemed to relish the hatred. It, in fact, it was as if gaining that hatred from the students there was the whole point. And in the process, they pushed all of those students further away from the truth. 
Now perhaps by God's grace, some of those students will understand that's not really what a Christian is like. But I'm afraid that many of them for the rest of their lives will associate that scene with Christianity in the name of Jesus. And it will be a terribly tragic irony on two accounts. First, the message they heard was completely devoid of the hope of Jesus Christ. And second, the people that they heard it from likely will never hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, but rather will hear, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. If we just want to be hated, it's the easiest thing in the world to accomplish. Just continue living in your flesh, have no, have no compassion for the lost, and throw Jesus' name around. People will utterly despise you. The hatred Jesus is talking about in this passage comes from actually being like him and the best mindset to have regarding this this hatred of the world is is this i'm not going to seek the hatred of the world but i'm not going to fear it either and if the world hates me it will be because of jesus and not because of unnecessary offense that i have given because of ungodly conduct a fourth thing that jesus tells us is the world's hatred is a it's a blessed part of association with Jesus. It's a blessed part of association with Jesus. Look at verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. They persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll also keep yours. But all these things they'll do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. Oh, what a, what a glorious thing to be so closely associated with Jesus that the world treats you like they treated him. I mean, what more could a disciple ask for? A disciple wants nothing more than to be treated like the master. And we, we ought never want to be treated better than Jesus. We, we ought to want to be treated exactly like Jesus by the world. Jesus notes that this works in two directions. People will respond to us in one of two ways, just the way that they did to him. Some hated Jesus, some followed him. They'll respond to us like that. Some will hate us, some will believe us. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll also keep yours. But then he says, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name. There are a couple of ways that this could be taken. We could understand Jesus to mean, hey, don't take it personally when, when they hate you. They don't really hate you. They hate me. So, so take it easy, okay? It's not you. It's me. So, so, so we could say that, that he's giving us comfort by saying it's not personal. They, it's just hate by association. I don't think that's right because, first of all, Jesus said in this passage, the world hates you. So take it personally. Take it very personally. There's another way to understand this, and it seems to be the way that the apostles understood it as demonstrated in Acts chapter 5. Jesus is saying, you will experience these things as part of the supreme blessing of being associated with me. He's not saying, don't take it personally, but rather, it's going to be your privilege to bear my name. Now, shortly in, in Pastor John and Pastor Rick's sermon series in Acts, we're going to get to chapter 5 where the apostles are beaten for refusing to stop preaching in the name of Jesus Christ. 
They were physically beaten. I want so badly to think that I would handle that well, but I'm not sure. How, how did they handle it? Here, here's Acts 5, verse 41. I don't know which one of you brothers drew Acts 5, but I don't know how you're going to preach anything but verse 41. Here's verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Every word of that will preach. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Now, Pastor Rick mentioned last week that that, that name of Jesus, it's not just a word, it's the person. It's the person, Jesus. They rejoiced, they celebrated that they were elevated to the grand privilege of being despised and mistreated for their association with this person, Jesus Christ. How can that be? How can it be that someone celebrated being beaten? Unless you can answer that question, this is pure craziness. How can it be that they rejoiced about being hated? The only explanation is that they found some kind of surpassing value in that name and the person behind that name. That's the only way to explain it. So how do we, how do we come to value the name and person of Jesus Christ like the apostles did? How do we do that? I think there are, there are different ways to get there. One is to realize the great offensiveness of sin. One way to value Christ is to realize the great offensiveness of sin. The problem is that realizing the offensiveness of sin is an admittedly almost impossible task. Listen to what J.C. Ryle wrote about man's inability to truly understand the offensiveness of sin. He wrote this, We have no line to fathom it and no measure by which to gauge it. The blind man can see no difference between a masterpiece of Raphael and the queen's head on a village signboard. The deaf man cannot distinguish between a penny whistle and a cathedral organ. The very animals whose smell is most offensive to us have no idea they are offensive and are not offensive to one another. And man, fallen man, I believe, can have no just idea what a vile thing is his sin is in the sight of that God whose handiwork is absolutely perfect. We cannot fathom the offensiveness of our sin fully. But let's, let's try to inch in that direction this morning for the purpose of gaining an appreciation for the value of Christ. All right, let's do that just for a moment. Can you think of the smallest sin you've ever committed? Can you think of the smallest sin you've ever committed? That's kind of a funny question. We, we, we typically ask, what's the biggest one? And that's easy to think of. What's the smallest? Well, you can't think of the smallest you've ever committed because it's so inoffensive in your mind, it didn't even register. You didn't think twice about it. You probably committed many such sins just this morning. So perhaps maybe we should raise the bar a little bit and let's say, what's the smallest, smallest sin you've ever committed that you're aware of? What's the smallest thing that you can think of that you're aware of? The smallest sin that you're aware of. Maybe something like a selfish thought. Okay, grab onto that and put that right here. 
Maybe it's a selfish thought, something like that. That tiny little thing, it's a tiny little thing to us, right? That tiny little thing is such a stench to God, so unbearably offensive to God, that your suffering in hell for all eternity under God's omnipotent torment could never satisfy His wrath for it, for that one tiny little thing. I'm going to say that again, okay? That tiny little sin is such a stench to God, so unbearably offensive to His infinite holiness that your suffering in hell for all eternity under God's omnipotent torment could never satisfy God's wrath for it. That that tiny little thing creates a debt that your suffering could not pay if given all eternity. And how many of those do you have? It's unfathomable, the multiplied offenses that we've committed against God and beyond the capacity of human human comprehension, how offensive they are to Him, utterly beyond the capacity of man to satisfy God's wrath for those offenses. You can conceive of it as an infinite mountain if you want to. You can conceive of it as an infinite, an infinite chasm. However you want to think of it, it's infinite and we are finite and there is no way, no way to get across it. Enter King Jesus Christ, the righteous, infinitely holy, condescending to take our place. And He satisfies the wrath of God for that infinite mountain of offenses in an afternoon. In an afternoon! And and so thoroughly and decisively was that debt paid, your debt paid, That with his dying breath, he said, it's finished. I've paid it all. Oh, hallelujah. And and what wouldn't you lay down for that man? Let the world hate me. Jesus loves me. And I love him. And there's no greater honor than to suffer dishonor due to being associated with that name, that man. To truly understand who Jesus is, is to value him above everything. Jesus is Himself the greatest treasure imaginable. And it is to that that I believe Jesus refers in Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12, when He says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. On my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. What's He talking about when He says, For your reward in heaven is great? He's saying, Me, you get me, you get me for all eternity. Because if we had the time to turn over to Revelation 21 and 22, it would be very easy to make the case that the reward that we receive in heaven is the presence of the Trinitarian God. We get Him. What a wonderful thing if when we encounter the scorn of the world, we did not regard it as a lamentable curse, but as a blessed reminder, oh, praise God, I'm in Christ. Praise Jesus. He chose me out of the world. Hallelujah, I'm His and He is mine. Suffering the hatred of the world is a reminder that I'm in Jesus and it's part of being associated 
with the name that is above all names. Fifth, the world's hatred is a byproduct of our privilege of gospel work. It's a byproduct of our privilege of gospel work. Look with me at verse 22. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have, they have seen and hated both me and my father. The word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Now, Jesus came to spread the message of the kingdom. He did that by saying things and doing things. He spoke the message of the kingdom and he lived the message of the kingdom, ultimately displaying the message of the kingdom on the cross and in the empty tomb. So Jesus spoke and he did. And when Jesus says in verse 22, if I had not spoken to them, and in verse 25, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. He does not mean that in an absolute sense. He doesn't mean they wouldn't be guilty and they would go to heaven. But he means that they are culpable on an even greater scale because they have seen the greatest revelation possible and they rejected it. This is very similar to what Jesus says in Matthew 11 when he says that if Sodom and Gomorrah had seen the revelation received by Israel, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. Very similar to what he's saying here. Jesus had come to Israel with the greatest revelation ever, himself. He said back in chapter 14, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. He is himself the greatest revelation ever. But man is hopelessly dead in his trespasses and sins. And that's demonstrated by the fact that even though these Israelites, they have heard the message of the kingdom straight from the mouth of the Son of God, and they've seen the signs of the kingdom straight from the hands of the Son of God, they not only rejected him, but they hated him. Jesus says in verse 23 that, that when they hated him, they hated the Father also. So Jesus said things, he did things to display the kingdom, to reveal sin, to call sinners to repentance, and to trust in him as Savior. The elect would believe, but a byproduct would be the hatred of the world. Now, what did Jesus say about us back in chapter 14? Back in 14:12, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. So those who believe, disciples, us, will continue the work of Jesus. We've talked about this repeatedly, haven't we? It's our great joy to continue the mission of Jesus Christ. And based on what Jesus says here, what should we expect to be the result of that? We know because of our own existence that the elect will believe what a glorious thought. Pastor Rick said in his message last week, can you imagine that trillions of years from now, looking at another believer and realizing that they're there because God gave you the privilege of sharing the gospel with them? What a wonderful thing. The elect are guaranteed to respond when we share the gospel. That's fantastic. But what's a guaranteed byproduct of our work in the gospel? So guaranteed that verse 25 says it's a fulfillment of Scripture. The hatred of the world toward the Father and the Son and those who believe His disciples. They hated Jesus without cause. They will hate us without cause. 
But let's look to Jesus. Every indication that we receive from Him is that He found the hatred of the world to be worth bringing many sons to glory. If we were to look to Hebrews 12, we find that for the joy set before Him, He endured the cross and despised the shame. Let's join Him in that. And let's consider the hatred of the world just part of the joy that comes from participating with Him as He brings many sons to glory. I spent part of this week at the Together for the Gospel conference with a number of brothers from Providence here. We enjoyed near constant fellowship with one another, car rides, meals, many conversations, much laughter. But by far, the, the, the best part of it was worshiping the Lord together. And, and hearing these brothers whose voices I know raised to the Father singing about the blood of Jesus. Every song that we sang proclaimed the truth of the gospel. This bloody cross and beautiful Savior and sins wiped away forevermore. And numerous times I just closed my eyes and listened to this enormous throng of people singing at the top of their lungs. The sound was just tremendous and I thought to myself, oh Boy, what will the new earth be like? This is just 12,000 people. What will the new earth be like? Jesus and His love and the life that He offers, joining us to other sinners forgiven for all eternity, it's worth every last act of hatred and persecution that the world can throw at us. Take the world. Give me Jesus. Amen? Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us in calling us out of, out of death and into life, out of darkness and into light. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to take seriously our calling and our joy to proclaim the excellencies of you who have done this for us. And we know, Lord, that that will call the hatred of the world upon us. Father, help us to cling to the words of our Savior from this passage when those times come. And help us to find comfort in them. When the world hates us because of our love for one another, because of this glorious gospel it is a reminder that we belong to Jesus and this Jesus has had his way with us and we'll spend eternity with him. We thank you for this. We ask that by your grace and the power of the Holy Spirit that when that time comes we will be ready and we will continue to speak the name of Jesus with all joy. We ask in His name. Amen.